Our gospel lesson today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter, starting in verse 21. I invite you to hear these words of Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and legal experts, and that he had to be killed and raised on the third day. Then Peter took hold of Jesus and, scolding him, began to correct him. God forbid, Lord, this won't happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stone that could make me stumble, for you are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. Then Jesus said to his disciples, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will find them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? For the Son of Man is about to come with the majesty of his Father and with his angels, and then he will repay each person for what that person has done. I assure you that some standing here won't die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Denial is the first stage in Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grief. And probably at some point along the road have heard about the stages of grief. And denial is that first stage. Typically, it's how we handle the reality of someone's death or a tragedy that we experience. We've all experienced denial. News of a loved one who passes away and we say something like, no, this cannot be, as our first reaction. But we often expand this denial to also include thoughts about death. So a parent might try to have a conversation about one day passing with an adult child, and they say, no, no, we don't need to worry about that right now, almost like pre-denial in a conversation. And while denial is natural, just as the other stages of grief are, we can get stuck in denial about the reality of death for us, or for a loved one. And so we find Peter today in this passage. Peter, just before this has happened today, has proclaimed who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's proclaimed who Jesus is and has a clear idea of it for the first time, and Jesus is telling the disciples now what is going to happen to him that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer at the hands of the Jewish leadership. Maybe it was a one-time conversation, or maybe it was over the course of time that Jesus began revealing this to the disciples. But the picture is clear that Jesus is going to face the type of opposition from the Jewish leadership that will lead to his eventual execution. So what does Peter do in that case? It tells us that Peter scolds Jesus. And the second that we hear this and read it, you know it's not going to go very well for Peter. But Peter was absolutely in line. I mean, 
Jesus is predicting his death, and Peter basically tells him, you're God, for God's sake. You are not just going to go and get killed. You're the one who is sent to save us. Remember when I just told you that five minutes ago, Jesus? We're following you. And Jesus turns, right, and scolds Peter, rebukes him, in many versions what it says. And he says to him, what? Get behind me, Satan. Now, literally, the, the word behind here is really important because disciples follow behind their teacher. They, they follow them. So Jesus is telling Peter, well, go ahead, get in line. Get in line behind me. The word Satan, right, is sometimes we think about like a devil with the red horns and stuff like that, but, but really Satan especially meant adversary. So Peter, who Jesus has just called the rock, in whom he's going to build the church, now is becoming a stone who's in the way, who's going to make him stumble, right? So Jesus is playing with this rock-stone thing the whole time. And he is standing in the way of Jesus, going the way he needs to. And Jesus was actually tempted in this case. Just like after his baptism, Jesus is feeling the temptation to not go through with this. Jesus' temptation at all these major points is to try to avoid what God wanted Jesus to do. Now, Jesus' temptation, right, it's not once and for all. It wasn't over in the third chapter of the book when Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted for Satan. No, he's tempted again here. He's going to be tempted again, uh, you know, on, on Holy Thursday night when he's praying in the garden. And the temptation for Jesus at all times is to accomplish ministry only on the human terms of success, not on what God's terms are. Now, we, friends, have recurring temptation, too. And I'm not just talking about by vices that we might have, although those often play in. But our main temptation is to abandon God's path and way for our lives. And usually we are abandoning that for something that it appearance seems easier. That is our temptation. Often we might do that through the symptoms that appear like as vices, as things that we struggle with, but really the temptation is to veer off of God's path for our lives and choose something that seems easier or that seems better. So then Jesus, after scolding Peter, right, he says this, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, we may be tempted to focus on the take up your cross part of what Jesus says. And that is a good, good thing to focus on. But the first part of what Jesus says, I think, is the hardest. When he says, say no to yourself or deny yourself. This is literally the opposite advice of everything that is in the self-help section at the bookstore. It is the opposite advice of every Instagram follower or influencer who you might follow. It is definitely the opposite of every prosperity preacher who is crying out, live your best life. Treat yourself is the opposite of deny yourself, right? Treat yourself, says, do whatever it takes to make sure that you are happy and comfortable and all of those things. And then Jesus is saying, deny yourself. 
So are we just supposed to live miserable lives then, Jesus? I mean, a lot of Christian people throughout history have taken it like that, right? Like the ascetics and the monks have basically said, like, I should have no earthly pleasure. Everything should be terrible. I should basically be starving and, like, and, and give everything away. And that's how generations of Christians in various places have interpreted this. Is that true discipleship? Should we walk around with a furrowed brow all of the time, feeling awful about ourselves and about the world? I don't think so. That doesn't seem to be how Jesus embodied what it meant to live in the kingdom. That's not how he interpreted following after God's way. Self-denial is not self-hate. Self-denial is not the opposite of self-fulfillment. It's not just about giving up things. That just makes you empty. The key, the key to self-denial is an orientation to life that is not focused on self. This that Jesus offers, this call right here to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow, this is the call to discipleship. Now notice, Jesus giving this to the disciples, right? These are people who have already decided to follow him. This isn't for like new believers who are just... who. This isn't what Jesus offers them when he says, come follow me early. No. This is for the people who have already decided to follow Jesus, who are putting it into practice in their lives. He's saying that discipleship, that following after me, that getting behind me looks like denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following. It looks like daily giving up yourself in commitment to Jesus. Another way of saying this is that this is conversion. Conversion here means changing the orientation of our life towards God, orienting away from a life that is centered around myself. Peter Scazzaro, in his work about emotionally healthy spirituality, calls this the great Copernican revolution. It says, when we each discover that the world doesn't revolve around ourselves, right? Y'all have met people who have not had this revolution, in their lives. They might live in the same house as you, right? If they're little, they probably haven't had this realization yet, right? Some of the great struggles of growing through adolescence and then finally like coming out of that phase, at some point we hope that maybe, just maybe, they will realize that the world does not revolve around them, right? But then what happens, right? There, sometimes people revert back to it, and some people, they ain't never gotten it. Never. Y'all, there's 85-year-olds who have not realized that the world does not revolve around them. So denying ourselves is to keep acknowledging the fact that the world does not revolve around me. Y'all, remember when Galileo and Copernicus, when they started to say this stuff, right? They were... I mean, they were basically excommunicated from the church and thought that because they thought everyone thought the, that the whole world revolved around the earth. And they were saying, no, it revolves around the sun. And it turns out they were right, right? But, but the fact is, is that it's a major shift. I would argue that's a, that's a conversion that has to happen in us. Jesus is saying, that didn't just happen the one time you went and knelt, whether it was for baptism or to make a decision or a commitment for Christ. It's something you have to do every single day because the pressures of our world are such that we want to cry out continually, well, but I could just make a little bit more about me, right? Like, wouldn't that be okay? 
Wouldn't that be okay, Jesus? And so this is the big shift. The logic of self-denial is the opposite of the logic of our world. And then Jesus goes on and he talks about gaining the whole world, right? And we might have heard it like, what is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? Or in this case, Jesus says, what would it be to gain the whole world but lose your life? And John Wesley in his sermon on this text talks about gaining all of the pleasures which this world can give when he talks about what it means to gain the world. We are literally told that gaining all of the pleasures that this world can give is basically the point of life. The goals that we are told to pursue when we send people off to college are basically the goals of hedonism, to suck the marrow out of life, like one of the transcendental poets would say. But have you ever met someone who is actually happy because they pursued money their entire life? Have you ever met someone who's gotten a lot of money and is content with just enough at that level? But Jesus tells us that all who want to save their lives will lose them. But all who lose their lives because of me will find them. This directly follows the discussion about denying ourselves. You see, the logic of the cross that Jesus gives is found in Colossians. And Paul writes, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul is telling the people at Colossae, you died. Now, are they dead? No, he's writing to people who are alive. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This, my friends, is baptism. It's what happens when we are clothed with Christ. The logic of the cross is that you are not your own. You are hidden in Christ now. And this requires a different type of logic. Paul will write later in Romans, we are now slaves to God and not slaves to sin anymore. And that when we are slaves to God, we are actually truly free. And friends, that does not make any sense in the logic of this world. But for those of us who are hidden in Christ, in baptism, it starts to make some sense. The old hymn sings, perfect submission, perfect delight. And anyone in our world today would say, perfect submission? What in the world could that possibly mean? So in his sermon on this passage, John Wesley talked about those who would choose on purpose to lose their own lives or soul instead of finding them in Jesus. He preached that a person who can make that choice would assume that a life of religion is a life of misery. Have you ever met those people? He then preaches that if anyone had that notion, that a life of religion is a life of misery, then they do not know what religion is. Wesley challenges this idea, stating that when we follow Jesus and lose our lives now, that we truly are living heaven on earth. And when we think we're gaining the whole world, we are just experiencing a pre-hell. Wesley writes, Will you have a foretaste of heaven now and then heaven forever? Or will you have a foretaste of hell now and then hell forever? Will you have two hells or two heavens? This logic requires a truly heavenly perspective. Our earthly life ending is not the end for the Christian. When people ask me what 
is the best part about being a pastor? Or what do you enjoy the most? I sometimes have an odd answer for them. Because it often involves walking with someone through the process of dying. Because I see amazing examples of people who do not feel like they are losing their lives. Rather, they are actually the ones gaining the whole world. Friends, our culture is most scared of death. And these saints that I'm talking about, who I've walked with, are given the peace of God to face their earthly end with joy and with expectation. And that is simply not humanly explainable. It cannot be done by human strength alone. It's because God is there with them, present and as real as the air we breathe. And this is the opposite of denial. It is knowing that when we die, we remain in the presence of God and experience it in a truer and more real way. Our efforts at denial push this holy acceptance away. So I invite you today to accept this heavenly perspective of life. I invite you to stop living as if this life is all you have, like the accumulation of accolades and stuff and money is what matters. I invite you to find your life. That when you deny yourself as the center of the universe, there you will find Jesus, the true center who holds all things together. Amen. I invite you to stand as you are able as we respond with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So we turn to the prayers of the people together. We do celebrate this day along 
with Barbara Ellington. It's her 90th birthday together, and so we just want to congratulate you and say happy birthday, Barbara. I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, you are a Lord who walks beside your people. You are a Lord who raises up those who are bent low. You are a Lord who feeds the hungry. You are a Lord who celebrates the small and the insignificant. You are a Lord who says, follow me. Lord Jesus, we pray for those who, especially in our congregation, need your touch and care at this time. For Liz Costin, as she remains in the hospital, and we pray that you would walk closely with her. Lord, for Rhonda Harding, as she has the lumpectomy on Tuesday, be near George Budd as he faces this radiation right now and the continual, um, and, and just that we ask your continual presence with their family at this time. God, we pray for Peggy Delaney as she uh, comes upon the one-year anniversary of that brain surgery last year. We give you thanks for George Medill and all the ways that you are walking with him. And Lord, for all the others in our congregation uh, that we lift up before you and name in our hearts before you, those family and friends who are dear and close to us. Oh Lord, our God, accept the fervent prayers of your people. In the multitude of your mercies, look with compassion upon us and all who turn to you for help. For you are gracious, O lover of souls. And to you we give glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Amen.